Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, picking up with the fifth and sixth commandments for our catechesis lesson today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it today. It seems like we always run out of time, so it's best to just go ahead and get into it. I'm going to start us with the fifth commandment. This is from Luther's small catechism, which is, you shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away for our catechesis lesson today. Thanks, Sean. Happy to. As the second table unfolds now, as, as we talked about last week, the fourth commandment served as this hinge that reminds us all authority comes from God and all authority then is carried out for the benefit of our neighbor. And so in that hinge from the first table, everything that has to do with our relationship with God into the second table, everything that has to do with our relationship with our neighbor. And just to give listeners that visual, it's always a great visual to think about the arrow, vertical arrow toward God and the horizontal arrow toward our neighbor. And that's sort of the life that we live constantly as Christians is to always think in those two ways. We'll hear it again when we get to the table of duties and to the daily prayers, but this reality that is included in the post-communion prayer with faith in you and fervent love toward one another. There are the two tables, and we saw last week how that fourth commandment was the hinge of those two tables. And now as we get it firmly into the second table, there's also a progression of thought in how God lays out the second table of the commandments, beginning with this fifth commandment. And it sort of goes from that which is nearest and dearest to our neighbor toward those things that are, if you will, less intimate toward the neighbor. So it starts with his very life, and then his wife, and then his property, and then his reputation. And then, if you will, in the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, we covet just that which belongs, anything that belongs to him, sort of his right just to live and just to be. And so if we follow these commandments again, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, Ninth and Tenth Commandments. You can see this progression of thought, that which is nearest to my neighbor, his own life, and then his wife, property, reputation, so on and so forth. Think of even uh, Luther's hymn, that very well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and how the end phrase there toward the last verse is, take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Now think of how those things are actually references to the commandments 
Now, just for the sake of, you know, for it fitting in poetically, if you will, with the tune, perhaps we take some of the words out of order. Take they are life, goods, fame, child, and wife. So life, goods, fame, life, fifth commandment, goods, seventh commandment, fame, eighth commandment, child, fourth commandment, wife, sixth commandment. So it's not perfectly in order just because it's got to be able to fit into the tune perhaps a little bit more and sort of be poetic and rhythmic. And yet there is that second table that God protects our neighbor from us and we from our neighbor. Uh, He protects us from our neighbor so that we can live in peace and quiet and faith toward him and fervent love for one another. So as we roll out this fifth commandment, we start with that which is most intimate. And then we work our way outward, if you will, toward those things that are less intimate to our neighbor. So as you read it, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Perhaps we'll get into this first point a little bit later uh, when we talk about some of the application of this. But notice that it says we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor. It's an important reminder for us that nobody's body belongs just to himself, that I do not love my neighbor just for my neighbor's sake, but also because my neighbor is a creation of God, that it shows God proper faith, it shows God proper obedience and proper honor to my one true God, as opposed to the capital M, me, God, when we say, here my neighbor, even if I am not getting along well with him or whatever because of the fall, nevertheless, this is one that God has created. And therefore, I should honor and respect and care for his body just as much as my own body. I always like that comforting reality, that comforting reminder that I am from God, that God created me. And if that's true of me, it's also true of my neighbor. And so who am I to go against God's will and try to harm my neighbor in his body, the very body that God gave him, the very body that God created, the very body that God will resurrect when redemption sees its fullest completion in the resurrection and life of the world to come. Even, remember, even the unfaithful, even the impenitent will be raised up on that last day. And so everybody will be honored on that last day as a beneficiary of the resurrection of the dead, even if, sadly, many of the bodies do not know the joy of life everlasting. uh, They will still be honored as God's creation, as part of that resurrection from the dead. And therefore, we have a duty to see in our neighbor God's creation. Now, that can be a slippery slope argument. It can be misused many ways. And people saying, well, God made me this way. Well, again, we've got to look through those bifocals, the lens of creation, the lens of the fall. So when some people want to identify themselves and their own body as being identified through the lens of sin, then we have to be able to articulate, well, no, God did not make you that way. There's a potential that sin in the fall has something to do with that, too. But in terms of God teaching us in this commandment, this commandment reminds us, my body doesn't belong to me, and my neighbor's body certainly doesn't belong to me. But as we'll get into later in some of the applications here, his body doesn't even belong to himself. His body belongs to God, and therefore we ought fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body. It's not just us serving our neighbor. 
It's first and foremost us serving God in all of these things. So that's perhaps a first point to keep in mind when going through this commandment. The second one is this well-chosen word murder, as opposed to what used to be said in the English, you shall not kill. And then it made it sound like any ending of life is always sinful. And that's not quite true. But rather, this word murder is perhaps a better chosen word because it rightly implies intent. That's really important. Jesus explains that murder begins in the heart, if you look at Matthew chapter 5. And the apostle John echoes this in one of his epistles in 1 John chapter 3. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And interestingly, in John 8, Jesus also refers to the devil as the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. So this word murder is a very loaded word just in helping us differentiate between an ending of life that, as we'll get into in a minute, might even be sanctioned by vocation versus an ending of life that comes through evil intent, wicked intent, uh, perhaps a carelessness of not of just not loving my neighbor and not thinking about my neighbor. But, but that's far different than simply the reality of living in a fallen world and as fellow sinners just the reality that everything that we touch sort of turns to rot and decay. Sometimes we do have accidents, and sometimes we do uh, get involved in messy situations in life that accidentally end in the life of another. And that does not necessarily imply murder. Even our own social systems and our own uh, rules and governmental laws make a distinction between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, manslaughter, all of these different things to show there is a difference in intention, There is a difference in the affection of the heart toward the neighbor. Uh, And so that has to be kept in mind when we keep this fifth commandment or when we consider this fifth commandment and weigh it in terms of how it applies in daily life, that the word murder is important. It implies a very important intent. And that intent implies anger. Luther's large catechism echoes Christ in focusing on anger as a breaking of the fifth commandment. That's a really important thing for us to consider because often we'll fly right past this commandment. We'll say, well, I've never ended anybody's life, so I guess I'm good to go on this commandment. Or we'll say, well, I've never raised my fist against someone and left them with a bloody lip or a puffy eye, or I've never broken their arm or leg. And so we think if we've never done anything physically to them that harms them, then we've never broken the fifth commandment. And yet as soon as we realize that the fifth commandment is a matter of the heart and a matter of anger, then every single one of us is quick to have to admit, I think I've broken this commandment a lot because we get angry with each other. Sadly, spouses get angry with one another. Children get angry with their parents. Parents get angry with their children. Neighbors get angry with their neighbors. Fellow Christians get angry with their fellow Christians, and we always joke about the idea of someone sitting in my pew or differences of opinion in a congregational meeting. And sadly, as much as we joke about those, the anger that wells up in the heart is not an anger that's expressing love toward one another, but rather it's expressing a frustration with one another that is very deep-seated in terms of the heart's emotions, and that anger can be a very dangerous weapon toward our neighbor, even if it never manifests itself in terms of the arms or the legs extending uh, our frustration out on our neighbor, 
Nevertheless, it still implies that that which is in the heart and that lens through which we see our neighbor is certainly sinful. So consider that, that where one is angry, he often seeks vengeance. But remember, only God and his vocational agents may seek vengeance. There's that great passage where he says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It's simply not my place as a sinner, as even as a Christian, as one who has faith and love and trust in God above all things. It's not my place to take out my anger on my neighbor. Rather, it is my place to appeal to the proper authorities who have authority from God. It's my place to have trust and confidence in God, patience in his timing. If in my anger, I want vengeance to be carried out right away, and God seems slow in delivering it, as the scriptures even sometimes hint that the early church probably felt that at times God was being slow. One, you know, one of the epistles even talks about this idea of, you know, God is not slow in keeping his promises. And sometimes we feel that way because of our anger and because of our vengeance and our desire for vengeance and because of our impatience in retribution. And so in all of these things, this is part of what the fifth commandment is speaking to. And when we think about that, with whom are we angry and against whom do we seek vengeance? It's not our friends, but it's our enemies. And so this reminds us, this commandment defends our enemies from us. It doesn't defend our best friends from us, though I suppose it defends our best friends from us, but we're not angry with our best friends usually until they turn into enemies, until we disagree about something. And so what a great reminder that the Ten Commandments are not set up just for people who get along well together anyway, but the second table of the law is a table that defends my enemies from me just as much as it defends my friends from me. In Proverbs 25, it talks about the idea of loving your enemy and doing good to your enemy, that thereby they might have heaping coals poured over their head. And it's sort of a backdoor version of sort of, uh, you know, showing my enemy that my vengeance toward them is actually Christian love. God will have his vengeance on the whole world when it's time to bring judgment on that last day. And He also disciplines the world now. He also curtails the evils of the world now. He throws down kings from their thrones when he's ready. He has his vengeance. It's simply not mine to take it out on my neighbor. The very best vengeance toward my neighbor is a love that seeks for them the forgiveness of sins, a love that seeks for them the joy of the Christian faith. If I can share with my enemy in the joy of the gospel, not that I don't proclaim the law to them when they need to hear the law, but where instead of wanting to call them to repentance with no desire for them to repent, but rather just to be able to say, oh, I've called you to repentance and now I'm going to condemn you in eternal judgment. That's not Christian love. The best vengeance is a Christian love that says, I pray that they repent that they might share with me in the joy of the gospel. What a wonderful vengeance over sin, death, and the power of the devil, over the devil himself to be able to, in a sense, rub it in his face that my enemy, who perhaps was also an enemy of the gospel, is now reconciled not only with me, but far more importantly with Christ Jesus. So anger and vengeance 
are a big part of this commandment. And there's nothing better in response to that than Christian love and the desire for the forgiveness of sins, the desire for the repentance of my neighbor. Think of Jonah in the Old Testament. And of course, we always hear that Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh. And if I recall correctly, uh, when I was little, I was either taught or I just misunderstood that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid. And that's not true. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want them to have the opportunity to repent. They were his enemies. They were sworn enemies. The Ninevites were uh, horrible people, uh, immoral people, and, and uh, just you know murderers of their enemies. And Jonah didn't want them to be able to repent. And yet he knew that God's word would do its work. And so he resisted the idea of going to Nineveh with the hopes that they would be condemned. And so, of course, we know the, the rest of the account that God sends the fish and the fish swallows him up and then spits him out. And then he goes to Nineveh and they do repent. And then at the end of the book there, at the end of the book of Jonah, of course, he's sort of bitter because they repented and they benefited from the things of God. And yet that is the greatest vengeance over evil. The greatest vengeance over sin is the Christian love that desires to be able to share with them in the things of God and in the joy that is the Christians in the gifts of God. So as we consider how this murder plays itself out, if it begins in the heart, perhaps this is why Jesus then uses the sequence he does when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And in that particular text, it almost you can almost imagine the vision of how each of the body parts that Jesus mentions plays out the anger that is in the heart. The eye sees my neighbor and I'm angry at him or I'm jealous of him or I'm envious of him. The foot carries me over to my neighbor because I really want to take out my frustrations on him. And then the hand actually does the dirty work. And that often is sadly how we see murder play out in our streets and in our cities. And yet it all begins in the heart. So sadly, the end product of such murder in the heart is seen many times throughout Scripture. Sadly, we have many examples of it from which to learn. The first recorded sin against a neighbor is murder, Cain and Abel. Right after the fall in Genesis 3, all of a sudden, already in Genesis 4, the very next chapter, the first recorded sin is murder. And it's a, it's a sad but wonderful reminder for us that shows how lethal sin was from the very beginning. It's not as if sin has just gradually gotten worse over time. But from the very beginning, we had this horrible reality of sin that sought even to take my neighbor's life from him, even brother on brother. This is how dangerous sin is. It's not a game to play with at all. It's not something to take lightly at all. As the large catechism says, God will not be mocked when people take sin so lightly. Of course, not only Cain and Abel, but also Saul breathed murder against David, not Saul who would become the apostle Paul, but Saul, the first king of Israel, of course, became jealous and envious of David. Of course, we could also speak of Saul, the would-be apostle who breathed murder on the followers of Jesus in those early days of the church. But here I'm referring to Saul and David. And then, of course, David, perhaps a little bit more crafty, and yet he also committed murder 
the murder of Uriah to try and cover up his other sins. So sadly, we have all too many examples in the scriptures that show us that this fifth commandment is not a commandment reserved for the worst of the worst in society, but it's a commandment that even among God's people is sadly committed either outwardly, either the extensions, the hands and fingers and feet, or inwardly in the heart. We are sadly guilty of this fifth commandment far more often than we'd like to say. We should note here that vocational responsibility is excluded from this commandment. And Luther argues it's because vocational responsibility supersedes it as a matter of the fourth commandment, which makes one think again about how the third commandment supersedes honoring the government according to the fourth commandment. We talked about that last week. So when we talk about this commandment about about murder, a father who is protecting his household by beating back an intruder is not guilty of murder. A government that punishes evil with the death penalty These things are actually sanctioned by God's word as legitimate forces against a neighbor's body. Think of how in our day and age, the pro-abortion advocates always try to accuse Christians of double standards. They say, how can you be in favor of the death penalty and yet be pro-life? And so you can't be both in favor of the death penalty and against abortion. But the distinction is very simple, isn't it? One is carried out with God's vocational authority and responsibility. The government has responsibility to reward good and punish evil. And God even very specifically says that the government does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is not just a theoretical threat that is never used, as when a parent might make a threat against the child of saying, you better do this or else, and then the or else never happens. But the government actually has the authority by God to carry out that or else, even to the point of death. So there are vocational responsibilities here. The father of the uh, household, the government agencies. Uh, And that helps us understand that uh, this is not just you shall not kill at all, but rather you shall not murder. And that gets into the sin of commission and omission You know, we often think of the sins of commission here, where we are far more often to think of the sin of commission, of actually hurting my neighbor. But what of the sin of omission, right? Help and support him in every physical need. Certainly, actively helping and defending our neighbor's body is an important part of this commandment. James's epistle talks about the lack of love in saying, oh, be warm and be fed and be clothed, but not actually helping. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry, and either you gave me something to eat or you didn't give me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink or you didn't give me something to drink. I was in prison, and you came and visited me or didn't come and visit me. And of course, they all respond, well, when did we do these things or when did we not do these things? So there is a sin of omission in here that we ought to keep in mind as well. Sometimes we're also commanded to even defend our neighbor's body from himself. I sort of hinted at this before, that the neighbor's body doesn't even belong to him. It belongs to God. And so laws against things that we would say, well, that's sort of weird. Why would you have a law against something like suicide? Because once they've committed the suicide, you can't exactly put them in prison or anything like that. But you have laws against these things to deter them from harming themselves, because that is proper Christian love toward a body created by God, Uh, laws about euthanasia, assisted suicide. These are godly laws, even though everyone says, yeah, but my neighbor is suffering. My neighbor has a 
poor quality of life, that might be sadly very true, but the body still does not belong to the neighbor. It belongs to God. And so we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor and his body, even if our neighbor wants us to. So this is a very important consideration in this fifth commandment. The fifth commandment never says you shall not murder your neighbor unless your neighbor wants you to. In multiple locations, the scripture reminds us that our body doesn't belong to us. You were bought with a price, it says. So it's not for us to decide how to end our own life. The Lord has our days divinely numbered. So when a neighbor prevents me from ending my own life, even in in days of discomfort, he is doing a most loving thing, loving my body as a creation of God. It's in obedience to God, and it's in honoring his creation that we defend our neighbor's body from himself, even, when he would rather end his life. There are ethical considerations here that Christians really understandably wrestle with. What if my loved one is on life support? And am I breaking the fifth commandment if the doctors say there's nothing more we can do, the body is shutting down? At what point am I, quote unquote, allowed to pull the plug? And rather than give some blanket statement on the radio as if it would fit every situation, I'd simply encourage a listener, make sure your pastor is part of this discussion. Don't try to bear that weight by yourself. In those times of emotional distress and anxiety, you need your pastor there to rightly apply the words of Scripture, rightly apply law and gospel, rightly remind you that God is a God of love and that he has good order and he is merciful toward us so that in these ethical gray areas, we can seek his will and according to his word, pray that we might do that which is God-pleasing in his sight and pray for forgiveness where we may have done wrong because everything, even my neighbor's body, is a gift from God and belongs to God. So finally, I might say on this commandment that the understanding of this beginning in the heart and intent also helps us understand that God does not hold us guilty for unintended harm that often happens just because we live in a fallen world. So if you have a safe driver who's doing the speed limit, and sadly, tragically, sometimes even little children run out in the street, and there's nothing the driver can do about it, despite everything he tries to do. That unavoidable accident, that does not mean that the person has to live the rest of his days thinking he is guilty of murder. Bad things, tragic things happen in this world because of the life of the fall. Even in the Old Testament civil law, the Israelites recognized a difference between murderers and what they referred to as manslayers. In Deuteronomy 19, a manslayer who killed his neighbor unintentionally without hating him previously could then flee to another town and try to rebuild his life there. And so there is this understanding, this appreciation of the importance of intent in this, the the anger of the heart. And that's an important distinction, especially right now. I think there are a lot of people who are really wrestling with the idea of saying, if I don't wear a mask into a store, am I breaking the fifth commandment because I'm not taking every extreme measure to protect my neighbor? I think that would be a guilty burdening of conscience that is totally unnecessary. Now, let's say that you know that you're sick with COVID or with something else that, you know, the Black Plague or whatever is is horribly contagious and could kill your neighbor, then stay home. But if you believe you're healthy, if you don't know anything different and you're just going about your daily life, 
uh, to think that you have to take the utmost extremes to try and protect your neighbor implies that in this fallen world, we can actually accomplish that when we can't all the time. Life in a fallen world means these things sadly are going to happen. And therefore, where we intend to help our neighbor just by living life carefully, maybe I wash my hands, maybe I blow my nose into my handkerchief, whatever it is, that does not mean that I am guilty of murder if unknowingly I accidentally transmit the flu or the cold or, yes, even COVID to my neighbor. And so a lot of people right now are really dealing with the emotional guilt of a supposed 11th commandment that I have to wear a mask or that I have to get a vaccine, that society has said, unless I do this, I am not properly loving my neighbor. That's simply not true. And so in this commandment, yes, we have a lot that we should really consider carefully and say, gee, maybe I breeze past this commandment far too quickly. And yet, we also now in this post-COVID age, we really need to defend our neighbor's conscience and say, you can go about living your daily life without the fear that you are unintentionally murdering your neighbor. That is a contradiction in terms, as this commandment shows. It implies intent. It implies anger toward my neighbor, hostility toward my neighbor, a carelessness toward my neighbor that is not just the inability to not control every aspect of life, but that carelessness that says, I don't even want to care about my neighbor in the least. That would be careless. But carelessness does not mean we live in a fallen world. So I hope your, your listeners take that and say, I can just go out into daily life and live as God would have me live, loving my neighbor, but with faith in God, that God is in control of this world and therefore honoring my body and my neighbor's body as that which belongs to God. I like how you've really oriented us towards God as is right for Christian faith, that we see all of this in the light of God and his care of us and our neighbor, and thus how we respond in that. And I think really key in that is that distinction you made between murder and kill. And I agree with you. I think it's a better translation to have murder than maybe you've seen in some previous translations of even the catechism and also scripture in the commandments as they show up. And it made me think, especially as you were talking there, of a quote that I think is really good from the large catechism on this commandment. Martin Luther writes this in paragraph 188 under the fifth commandment. Therefore, the entire sum of what it means not to murder is to be impressed most clearly upon the simple-minded. And he cites Deuteronomy 6, 7. In the first place, we must harm no one either with our hand or by deed. We must not use our tongue to instigate or counsel harm. We must neither use nor agree to use any means or methods by which another person may be injured. Finally, the heart must not be ill disposed toward anyone or wish another person ill in anger and hatred. Then body and soul may be innocent toward everyone. I think that just beautifully sums up exactly what you have just laid out there so well for us. And you've begun to bring in some connections for us of how we see these commandments in relation to one another. You talked about the fifth being servant to the fourth as fourth was to the third, as we talked previously but also I'm bringing in the example of King David and Uriah and his breaking of the fifth commandment there. Obviously, we see that in connection to the sixth commandment, which is where we will go next. So we'll take a break here. But when we come back from break, we'll pick up our catechesis lesson on the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And so we'll continue that with Pastor Bessel on the other side of the break. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. 
word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Mark Bestel, our catechist for this series, The Catechized Life. And Pastor Bestel, as you set up for us today, we are talking about the commandments about life and wife. And so we talked about that life part in regards to the fifth commandment in the first half. And now we'll pick up the sixth commandment here in the second half of this show, which of course would relate to what you are referring to as the wife part. And so let's go ahead and get the sixth commandment from Luther's small catechism here. You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Thus far the catechism. So go ahead, Pastor Bestel, and give us our catechesis lesson on the sixth commandment. All right. So just as with the fifth commandment, we have too narrow a view of it so that people think that in the fifth commandment, all it has to do with is actually ending someone else's life and they don't breathe anymore. In the same way, I think we have too narrow of a view of the Sixth Commandment, and often part of our catechesis and the job we have to do as pastors in teaching the young is that this commandment can be broken far before you ever get to the marriage estate. Children have a sort of a, a funny, innocent way of thinking of this commandment sometimes. I, I can't remember who it was in my family, but someone in my family thought that uh, you shall not commit adultery. They thought when they were growing up, they thought it meant you shall not interrupt adults when they're talking. And there's sort of, so there's sort of this innocence, but also ignorance among the youth. But even among the adults of our society, there's a narrowness in their understanding of this commandment that thinks it's just about the two people who are involved in marriage together. And that's certainly not the case. In order to properly appreciate this commandment, let's point out that St. Paul says that one who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one with her. And in his reminder, Paul quotes Genesis marriage language, the two become one flesh. And so this commandment is not just for two married people or for a single person who's invading the relationship of a married couple. It's a protection of God's entire marriage estate against anyone who would sin against it. That includes premarital sexual issues, extramarital sexual issues. Even, I've had cases of this before, not in my own congregation, but within the, I'll just say within the area to try to keep it confidential, even areas in which people who had both been married in the past, perhaps were now widows or divorced or whatever the situation might be, they say, you know, because we've lived in marriage before, now we should have the right to live beyond marriage how we want to for tax benefits. Nope, that's still a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment protects the marriage estate against anyone who would sin against it. The uh, scriptures even say, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a big statement. And therefore, we better very carefully understand the depth, breadth, height, width of this commandment. It's given not as a technical sin against the marriage estate, but as a most horrible 
aggression against your neighbor. Again, if we want to think of the life and wife reality, what is the most intimate thing next to a neighbor's life is his wife, sometimes even more so than his own life, right? He will, he, uh, the husband will gladly lay down his life for his wife, hopefully, that knight in shining armor mentality that says, yes, I would rather give my own life than lose my wife and therefore for the safety of hers. And so it is so intimate, this relationship is, and therefore the details of this commandment are, that really the aggression against this commandment or the aggression against the marriage estate is so horrible that it's the only one of the final nine commandments that Luther's meaning does not include the description of the sin of commission. If you've ever noticed that in the, in the meaning, it simply says, that we lead a sexual, pure, and decent life, and all we say and do, husbands and wives, uh, love and honor one another. It says nothing about how you actually commit a sin against this. It just talks about, in a sense, how would we omit righteousness in this, and how should we be encouraged to live rightly according to it? But it's almost as if Luther doesn't even want to give anyone an idea of this. And yet, when we think about the ideas regarding this, it's plastered all over our TV screens, all over the internet. I mean, people are constantly being fed with various notions of how to harm the marriage estate, and they're becoming numb to it because it's so common. And so we really need to uphold this as Christians, this beautiful commandment, because it defends the beauty of the marriage estate. It doesn't just defend two people in it, but it defends the entire estate just as the fifth commandment defends the body that God has given to each created individual. Now, this defends the marriage relationship God has reserved for each individual as he knows best and for each couple of man and wife as he knows is best. For recall in the beginning, he looked at Adam and that's the one area of his perfect creation where he said it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he joined woman to man and said, now this is very good. And therefore, we have to defend this commandment, seeing just how beautiful the design is in God's sight and how much this marriage estate belongs to him and not just to my neighbor, so that if I can get my neighbor's wife away from him, then I'm somehow justified in it. Or if I'm not yet in the marriage estate, somehow I have no relationship or responsibility toward it. So one of the key things in teaching this to the youth is to teach them that they ought cherish this marriage estate before they ever enter into it. And it is not only an issue of personal temptation, but it's also the issue of encouraging others and honoring neighbors' marriages rather than, for example, cynically joking with them about their spouse's imperfection. Think of youth who, as they watch TV, they are taught to think cynically of the marriage estate, think that it's the old ball and chain a metaphor that's used often. They're taught to joke about it, to frown upon it, to think that dating is the real place of romance. And then once you get married, it's supposedly all downhill from there. And that's simply not true. That's not God's marriage estate at all. Marriage is a beautiful estate filled with God's good gifts. In fact, Luther in the large catechism, I believe it's paragraph 209, he says that marriage is the highest estate. And he says that the world does not see it that way. In fact, he refers to it, he says that it is not seen that way by the quote, the blind world, right? The world acts as if it knows more about sex and love and joyous unity 
than the church does. It refers to Christians' views on these things as sort of prudish or boring or plain. None of that is true at all. In fact, the world's love songs sing about this romantic idealism that really never transpires into daily life. It never comes to full fruition because it's all make-believe. Rather than the joy of the marriage estate, which is not make-believe at all, but it is as God has designed it to be, one man, one woman, God puts them together and says, it is better for you to be together than to be apart, and you will be my gifts to each other. Now, when Luther says that this marriage is the highest estate, we might ask the question, why can he so authoritatively say that? And the answer comes because marriage comes from Christ's relationship to his church. And this is an important point for Christians to keep in mind. When the scriptures speak of Christ being married to the church, many people think that it's simply a metaphor that the scriptures are using or are borrowing to try to help us understand Christ's love to the church. It's not really like marriage, but this is just sort of a helpful metaphor and imagery that is being borrowed from the actual estate of marriage. St. Paul says just the opposite is true. When he says in Ephesians 5, he says that the true marriage The everlasting marriage, the definition of marriage, is Christ's relationship to his church. He says, this mystery is profound, and I say to you that it regards Christ and his church. So the true marriage, the everlasting marriage, the definition of marriage, is Christ and the church. And our marriages in daily life are to reflect that, learn from that, confess that, so that husbands and wives love and honor each other as Christ and his church love and honor each other. So the husband is to the wife to be a picture of Christ. A picture of Christ because Christ, the true bridegroom, is, of course, the true, uh, not just picture, but is the true reality of the eternal marriage. Our marriages are for this life, are for this earth. They are not into the heavenly places and unto life everlasting but rather death parts us. And though it's a sad reality when death parts husband and wife, it nevertheless subtly points us forward to and grounds us in the firm reality that this temporal marriage, its main purpose had always been to keep us together focused in Christ Jesus and his true marriage, his everlasting marriage to the church. And therefore, when we think of that true joy of marriage, we think of the beautiful relationship that Christ has in caring for his church and the church trusting Christ. This gives us a whole better understanding of what these passages mean when the world thinks in its blind view of the relationship between men and women. And it reads these passages like, husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands. And the world says, oh, this is terrible. But no, it's a picture of Christ and the church. And so just as the church lovingly and joyfully can trust its Lord, so also wives can lovingly and joyfully trust the husband that God has given them because that husband has responsibilities of laying down his life for his bride, just as Christ lays down his life for the church. So we as Christians should not let the world's romantic love songs 
paint pictures of marriage or of the marriage estate or of the beauty of it. And we've let that happen to the point now where there are even songs out there that say something like, love will keep us alive or until love parts us or until a lack of love parts us. I actually heard someone report back to me who had gone to a wedding one time and the secular marriage vows were basically not until death us do part, but until we no longer love one another. Well, love does not hold the marriage together. Marriage holds love together or the two sinners together because it's Christ's love and it's Christ's commitment and it's Christ's institution of all of this that holds these things together. So we cannot believe or we cannot teach that love will hold the marriage together unless we are pointing to Christ's love and unless we are pointing to God's will and God's love through his holy will then perhaps I suppose you could speak in such ways. But the true joy of marriage estate is therefore helpful in times of temptation when we are afraid that the love for the immediate situation is waning. Or let's say that we haven't even gotten to the marriage estate yet, and it's just lust. Think of the high school student who is tempted in various ways, the college-age youth who may think very immediately of the narrow pleasure of the moment. Right. You've got young men that, again, they get out onto the Internet and it's just uh, it's just all over the place. Uh, uh, young women, the same, even into older years. This is a problem with folks. And it's a problem because all we can think of is the immediate pleasure of the situation rather than the institution God has put together. And so one of the things that I think that we can remind our young listeners about is that in the time of temptation, think of the marriage estate and how resisting individual urges is being faithful to your future spouse, that future spouse that God knows best to reserve for you according to his will. And if there is a future spouse out there, as he knows is best, and if you're going to live your life in faith, love, and trust in God above all things, then fear and love God so that you lead a pure and decent life, not only then, but also now in anticipation of that marriage estate. Uh, Same thing even after marriage, when the spouse that God has given you is now safely in heaven, uh, which is the number one joy of earthly marriage is to keep each other grounded in Christ Jesus, that we might watch each other even leave this world into the life of the world to come and know that my loved one is safe in heaven. When that has happened, then even after marriage, even in widowhood, still lead that pure, chaste life as a way of honoring that deceased spouse. So in times of temptation, the reminder of the marriage estate is a very important thing, that we don't just live for the moment, but rather we live for the marriage estate as God has given it. And our entire sexual identity that God has given us has everything to do with this marriage estate. And basically, outside of the marriage estate, there's no reason for the sexual identity. It's perhaps not coincidental that as the idea of marriage has broken down in society, People have sort of started to play with the very definitions of sexual identity, sexual conduct. They don't really see how any of these things has any good order to it other than just to say immediate pleasure. And so now even our identity is being defined by our sexual desires rather than the sexual desires being defined by who God has made us for the marriage estate. 
We might also even keep in mind then, even in talking about this, that in the large catechism, Luther even hints that parents and government have a duty to support God's marriage estate. Again, think of what's going on in our society and how we are now being driven to view sexuality and sexual impulse and sexual identity according to a very specific non-Christian viewpoint. Uh, We are broadcasting this episode during the month of June, uh, which now apparently is Pride Month. And it's all about LGBTQ agenda. And you are either an ally of this or you're going to be ostracized as one who is not proud. And yet notice what it's trying to do. It's trying to redefine the marriage estate rather than government and society and family upholding the marriage estate that God has given So we ought not redefine or allow the world to redefine the marriage estate in worldly ways with rules favoring LGBTQ and all of this different stuff. But rather, we ought, as Christians, proactively speak openly about the joy of marriage, about the benefits of marriage, about God's gift of marriage for one man and one woman. And even if society wants to try and redefine it, We ought to live that quiet and peaceable life that says, no, this is exactly what marriage is meant to be. And we're going to have to confess for the benefit of the world. And so parents and government are supposed to uphold God's marriage estate. And then within the marriage estate, before the marriage estate, after the marriage estate, all individuals are to defend our neighbor's marriages, to speak well of our neighbor's marriages, to encourage them in the neighbor's marriage. And that can be done whether you're in a marriage yourself or outside of the marriage yourself, so that the widow has a role in uh, upholding the estate of marriage. The 13-year-old has a role in upholding the estate of marriage. The children of the family have a role in upholding the estate of marriage because that estate of marriage is so central and so primary. Uh, that's another thing to keep in mind, and it's it's something that I try to remind folks when I'm doing premarital pastoral care with them, is that husband and wife are bound by Christ together until death parts us. There is no other vocational role that has that same binding feature. Not even that of parent, not even that role has a lifelong reality or a practical reality the way that marriage does. Yes, I am forever my son's and daughter's father. That's always going to be true. And yet how that relationship works changes over time in a way that the marriage estate and my relationship to my wife will never change. My relationship to my wife is primary, and as much as we have to devote so much energy to our children, husbands and wives ought always be very careful to not allow our vocation as parent to, in a sense, take the upper hand over our relationship as husband and wife. That is the highest estate. And therefore, the children of the household should not run the household, but rather the children of the household ought even support the marriage estate, because marriage is that high of an estate because it confesses in ways that perhaps every other vocation can't. It confesses the intimacy of Christ's relationship with his church. And therefore, one other thing we might say about this, even in terms of how we confess marriage one to another And as pastors are trying to teach this for the Christian couple, the best a man can love his wife is to love Christ more than her. 
not as if putting her to the sidelines and saying, I'm going to be at church seven days a week. That's not what we mean. But rather, the best a man can love his wife is to love Christ and his holy will more than whatever his wife desires. You know, to take Adam as the example. The woman wanted Eve, wanted his wife to be able to make whatever decision she wanted to make, and it was not to her benefit so that God even chastises him because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of the tree. Um, The very best that a man can love his wife is to love Christ more than her. And the same is true the other way. The very best that a woman can love her husband is to love Christ, quote unquote, more so that you are always pointing each other to God's holy will for marriage. Marriage can endure anything as long as it remembers that God is sort of, if you will, the central piece to that marriage, that Christ is the great bridegroom, Christ is the trustworthy one, that there are going to be days where husbands and wives, because we're sinners, because God has, in his infinite wisdom, he has put into this perfect estate, he has put imperfect people, and therefore imperfect people are going to have days where we don't get along very well, where we struggle to be patient with one another, And yet where we are always pointing to Christ and pointing each other to Christ and keeping each other grounded firmly in Christ, that marriage will be blessed. That marriage will have a long life of joy together as many days as God provides it. So in the sixth commandment, when we think of all of the different ways in which we sin against this commandment, it doesn't even have to be outwardly, right? It doesn't even have to be a physical sin. It can be thoughts of the head. It can be wandering eyes. Whatever the sins are, they are always an attack against the marriage estate. And so in this meaning of the commandment, notice how everything is about just living a pure and decent life in everything we do. And then spouses look at each other and say, you are God's gift to me. Okay. And allow the other one to confess of you that you are God's gift to them. And as we see each other as God's gift to each other, then we don't live as two individuals in a marriage estate, but rather now we live as one flesh. We live for each other. Uh, This is why marriage can never be built on compromise. By definition, compromise always says, I will give you that which is least important to me, and I will hold on for myself that which is most important to me. If you're going to define your marriage that way, then you're always going to live as two individuals in the estate of marriage. But rather in marriage, it can't be run by compromise or it can't be ruled by compromise. And it can't even be ruled by quote unquote commitment because that commitment is only as good as each other. And we're sinners. And so some days we'll feel very committed and other days we'll not feel very committed. So a marriage that is built on commitment is in jeopardy of failing. A marriage that is built on compromise is already failing each other. A marriage that is built on Christ and is constantly pointing each other to Christ and therefore lives daily life dependent upon Christ, that marriage will be kept and safeguarded by Christ. I might add in there then too that not only built on Christ, but then built on the things of Christ as well, that we would live in forgiveness towards one another, right? That All of the things that are a matter of our Christian confession before the world should be played out in our marriage. And I think this is one of the places, as you've rightly highlighted here for us, that Luther in his explanation, you know, doesn't give the examples of how we sin against this. He just 
what I like to say is he just gives us the way that we should confess what marriage is before the world. And I think that with this commandment, that's all the more important. And I think sadly, as times we as Christians have to recognize that we haven't had the best confession of marriage before the world in this, namely, and you can find statistics out there, easy Google searches on this and so forth, that the marriage and divorce rate among Christians isn't much better than the secular world around us. I think we need to do better than that. I think we need to practice forgiveness with one another. I think we need to practice the things that we confess about our faith as we live that out in our marriage. Yes, it's a broken world. Yes, we're going to sin against each other. It's two sinners trying to live together as one flesh. You're going to need Christ to unite that and hold that bond, right? And yet also, I think at times as we have this confession for the world, Pastor Bestel, before we run out of time here, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. You and I are both in Illinois. And there's this hideous bill that has been passed and may already be signed at this point. I'm not quite sure what the status is now by Governor Pritzker. He's going to be signing it, but it's sex ed that will be taught in the schools, in the public schools. Thankfully, it was averted that it's going to be forced upon the private schools, uh, our Lutheran schools as well. But this is hideous sorts of material here. And I like what the uh, Lutherans for Life, I believe it was, in Illinois put out uh, the statement. They said, call Governor Pritzker and let him know what God expects of his civic rulers and urge him not to sign this. And this relates to the Sixth Commandment, I think. You know, again, I like what you set up in the, the Fifth Commandment, that we consider our neighbor and defend our neighbor against himself. And especially when it comes to the innocence of our children, whether they're in our churches or not, right? that we care about this. And this sometimes comes up as well as that Christians, we get so worried about the sixth commandment and when it comes to homosexual marriage and those sorts of things. And maybe at times it's right that we do make too big a deal of this and we should consider that confession that we have in our own marriages before the world and, and maybe put a little more energy there, but that we do care about marriages as it is held in the secular society. First, because God has created marriage, but also that we would defend our neighbors in this gift that is marriage, right? Do you want to comment or reflect any on that? Sure. It's an interesting relationship that God sets up with the marriage estate when it is true that it is a temporal realm relationship. And so government even has a place in defending marriage. And you're right, we're seeing all around us that government is not only not defending it, but it is very proactively trying to redefine it. And so Christians should stand up for what marriage actually is and should demand of government and society that marriage be upheld for what it actually is. Sometimes people think that marriage is defined only by the individual or by the individual religion, as if marriage can mean one thing for one person and one thing for something else. But marriage comes from God. It is not man's social construct. You know, one of the new versions of it now is sort of this idea of friend marriage, that we're not even romantically involved or anything like that. We don't sleep in the same bed. We just want the tax benefits of being considered married. And so that now is being tried as a form of what counts as marriage. And so society has certainly denigrated it to just be this social construct. And you're right, we would do better if we stood up for this. And even historically, you know, maybe some of our younger listeners don't know, there was a day and time in which divorce was against the law. And that actually is a godly thing to consider is that, you know, we should not make it easier for people to sin and say, oh, let's not have a civil law about divorce. We should make it easier for people to leave marriage. 
where would we be today if the church had done a better job? And I'm sure, I mean, we can't necessarily pinpoint any one individual and say, it's your fault, you didn't preach or teach well enough on this. But if the church had done a better job confessing years ago regarding the importance of not allowing divorce just to seep into the life of the congregation, if Christians in their own individual lives confess this reality. I mentioned in a sermon recently, I said, you know, it's very easy for us to point fingers at the LGBTQ agenda, but what about our own families, right? That there should be no laziness toward our spouse as one who is given to us by God. There should be no infatuation with pornography, with, you know, with these things on the internet. The marriage and the family has to be upheld by Christian families before we can demand of society that society uphold it. Let that judgment, if you will, start at the house of God. And if the people of God don't uh, uphold marriage, then why would we expect the world to uphold it? So we have a strong responsibility here for all of our neighbors' sake to uphold marriage within the church, especially as everything, like you said, all of our daily life in marriage depends upon not just the idea of Christ or the ideal of Christ, but the forgiveness of sins the call to repentance, the patience and forgiveness with one another, the desire to do better, the devotion to one another because we are Christ. And so if God has given the individual baptized every blessing, if you will, so that the individual baptized can say, wow, what a gift that I'm a child of God, then how much more so for two individually baptized individuals to now become one flesh together in the estate of marriage. It is a beautiful estate, and we should cherish it, uphold it, defend it, confess it before men. That is well said. As always, thank you so much for your catechesis lessons here today, Pastor Bestel, on the fifth and sixth commandments regarding our life and wife. And next week, we will pick up the rest of the commandments if we are able to get them all into one episode. Always so much more that we could say. But thank you for those lessons here today. And we'll look forward to the rest of the commandments next week. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.